Good afternoon. This is Tracy, and I will be reading the Telegram and Gazette for Wednesday, March 13th. Thanks to the Memorial Foundation for the Blind for its ongoing support. This program also is supported in part by a grant from the Worcester Arts Council, a local agency, which is supported by the Mass Cultural Council, a state agency. We have nine obituaries in today's paper. Recent deaths include Christopher Clausen, Darren Ekmayan, E-K-N-A-I-A-N, Priscilla Retta Hampton, Stephen J. Hijack, David E. Libby, David R. Phoenix Sr., Francis Rano, Reva H. Halfen Segal, and Marilyn D. Stake. Our first full obituary today is for Francis Butch Rano, R-A-N-O. Francis was 83 and of Worcester, formerly of Sturbridge, and he passed peacefully on Saturday, March 9th, at the Rose Monahan Hospice Home after a brief illness. He graduated from Sacred Heart Academy and joined the Massachusetts Army National Guard. He worked in the dental industry for over 35 years for the former Smith Holden Company and Healthco internationally for retiring. He is survived by many nieces, nephews, and extended family and friends. He was predeceased by his parents, a sister, Janet, and three brothers, Anthony, Carl, known as Charlie, and Alessio, known as Sonny. He was a lifelong member of Our Lady of Mount Carmel Church. He was devoted to his family and enjoyed celebrating special occasions with them. A period of calling hours is going to be held Friday the 15th from 9.30 a.m. to 10.45 a.m., followed by a celebration of Christian burial mass at 11 o'clock at Our Lady of Loretto Church, 37 Massasoit Road in Worcester. Family friend, the Reverend Charles Monroe, will celebrate the Mass. Burial with military honors is going to follow in St. John's Cemetery. Once again, this is for Francis, known as Butch Reno of Worcester. Next, also from Worcester, Christopher Clausen was 46 when he passed away on Sunday, March 10th, after complications from a stroke with his family by his side. Chris leaves his parents, Thomas and Janet Clausen of Millbury, his sister Jane, and her husband Christopher, and he also had many aunts, uncles, cousins, and his dog Sadie. Chris was predeceased by his loving wife, Megan Elizabeth. Chris graduated from Millbury Memorial High School, and he lettered there in cross-country and indoor track, and he was also a member of their golf team. He worked as an accountant for several different companies over the years. He was also an amazing self-taught musician who specialized in piano and guitar. Family and friends are invited to remember and celebrate Chris's life by gathering for a time of visitation on Saturday, March 16th, from 9 until 10.15 a.m. at the Mulhane Home for Funerals, 45 North Main Street in Millbury. His funeral service is going to fall at 11 a.m., in St. Bridget Church, 59 North Main Street, in Millbury. His burial will be at West Millbury Cemetery. Once again, this is for Christopher Clausen, 46, of Worcester. Next, from Boylston, David E., known as Mert, 
Libby, was 81 when he passed peacefully at home on Sunday, March 10th. He leaves his son David and partner Susan, two daughters, Lisa and husband Scott, and Donna and husband Matthew, all of Boylston. He also leaves four grandchildren, one great-grandchild, and a brother, Rick, of Andover, New Hampshire. He was predeceased by his wife, Mary Ford Libby, and by two brothers, Dennis and Rod. Mert was born in Worcester and served in the National Guard. He also worked as a truck driver for the Henley Lundgren Company in Shrewsbury and as a truck driver and well driller for the R.E. Chapman Company in West Boylston. He was a member of the Teamsters Local 170 Union and International Union of Operating Engineers Local 4. He was also a retired lieutenant from the Boylston Fire Department and a member of the Straw Hollow Engine Works. His graveside service and burial will be held on Friday the 15th at 12 noon in Pine Grove Cemetery in Boylston. There are no calling hours. The Nordgren Memorial Chapel is directing arrangements. Once again for David E., known as Mert Libby of Boylston. From Worcester, Marilyn D. Grenader Stake, 91, passed peacefully on March 8th. She had a brief illness prior to her passing. Marilyn was born in Boston and leaves behind her six children, Paul and wife Patty, Cynthia, Suzanne and husband Bruce, Curtis and wife Linda, Robert and wife Lisa, with whom she lived, and John. She was predeceased by her husband Fred, her son Fred Jr., and grandson John, and a great-granddaughter Stella. She was also predeceased by her brothers and sisters. She also leaves behind 11 grandchildren, five great-grandchildren. She worked as a nurse at the psychiatric unit at St. Vincent Hospital over 35 years. She was an avid New England sports fan. There will be calling hours on Saturday, March 16th from 10 until 12 o'clock at Callahan Fay and Caswell Life Celebration Home, 61 Myrtle Street in Worcester. A funeral service in the funeral home will begin at 12 p.m. Her burial will be held privately at a later date. Once again, this is from Marilyn D. Stake of Worcester. From Holden, Stephen J. Hijek, H-Y-J-E-K, 68, passed away on Saturday, March 9th, with the love of his life, his wife, and best friend Darlene by his side after a long series of health challenges. Stephen was born in Vermont, the son of Patricia and John. He grew up in Williamstown and worked, uh, went, got his associates from Wentworth Institute. Stephen then founded in 1988 and served as president of Back Care Basics for over 25 years before retiring. He is survived by his wife Darlene of 31 years, a sister, Johnny Lee of Pittsfield, a nephew, Nick, and his beloved dog, Churchill, and many family and friends. Stephen was a member of St. John's Church. A period of calling hours will be held tomorrow, the 14th, from 11.30 a.m. to 12.15, followed by his funeral mass at 12.30 in St. John's Church. His burial will be private. The Mercadante Funeral Home and Chapel is assisting the family with arrangements. Once again, 
for Stephen J. Hijack of Holden. From Canton this afternoon, Reva H. Seagal, age 88, died peacefully on Monday, March 11th at the Orchard Grove in Canton, surrounded by the loving presence of her family. Born in Worcester, she's the daughter of George and Molly Halfen and lived most of her life in Massachusetts before retiring to Mashpee and Highland Beach in Florida. She'll be lovingly missed and remembered by her daughter Lisa of Bellingham, her son Warren and his wife Diane of Naples, and her many beloved grandchildren. She was predeceased by her devoted husband of 53 years, Philip, in 2008, and her daughter Susan in 1959. Family and friends are going to gather for a graveside funeral service at 11 a.m. on Friday, March 15th, at Benibrith Cemetery, 55 St. John's Road in Worcester. Arrangements are under the care of the Miles Funeral Home of Holden. Once again, for Reva H. Halfen Seagal of Canton. Next, more from Uxbridge, David R. Phoenix Sr. was 77 when he passed at home on March 10th with his family by his side. He survived by his beloved wife, Jackie, of 22 years, his children, David of Florida, Lori of Norwood, and Mike and his wife, Alana of Uxbridge, along with four grandchildren. Visiting hours are going to be held Saturday, March 16th, from 9 to 10.30 a.m. in the Booma Funeral Home, 101 North Main Street, Uxbridge, followed by a funeral service at 11 a.m. in the funeral home. His burial will follow in Prospect Hill Cemetery in Menden Street in Uxbridge. A more complete obituary may be viewed at bumafuneralhome.com. Once again, for David R. Phoenix, Sr. of Uxbridge. From Worcester, Duran Agnan, E-K-N-A-I-A-N, was 82 when he passed on Saturday, March 9th, in the Lutheran home. A funeral service will be held on Friday the 15th at 11 a.m. in Holy Trinity Armenian Apostolic Church, 635 Grove Street. Burial will follow in Hope Cemetery. There are no visiting hours. To view a full obituary, please visit callahanfay.com. Once again, this is for Duran Eknayan of Worcester. And lastly, today from Worcester also, Priscilla Retta Tony Hampton, 88, passed on Saturday, March 9th. Calling hours for, um, for her are March 14th, tomorrow from 9 until 11 a.m., followed by a funeral service at 11 o'clock in the Mercadante Funeral Home and Chapel, which of course is 370 Plantation Street in Worcester. A more complete obituary may be found at mercadantefuneral.com. Once again, for Priscilla Retta Hampton. Now, for more details of any of today's obituaries, please call us at 508-797-1117. And that's complete obituaries from today's TNG. You are listening to a reading of the Worcester Telegram and Gazette, a production of Audio Journal. And we now have front page news from today's paper for Wednesday, March 13th. The lead story out of Worcester today 
Dijon D. Belmavis, who police believe is one of two men who killed Chastity Nunez and her 11-year-old daughter, Zella, last week, was arrested Monday afternoon in San Diego. This is a great moment for the city of Worcester, a great moment for the police department, city manager Eric Batista said at a Monday night press conference. It's a time of celebration for us because we've been hard at work collaborating with many partners to come to this moment. Belnavis was apprehended during a traffic stop about 5.40 p.m. Eastern Time, police say. During the press conference at Worcester Police Headquarters, Worcester County District Attorney Joseph Early said Belnavis was arrested near the San Diego Zoo. Police allege that Belnavis, 27, and Carell Mangual, 28, opened fire on an SUV parked on Englewood Avenue around 3 o'clock on March 5th, killing 27-year-old Chastity and her daughter. Mangual was arrested Wednesday and arraigned Thursday in Central District Court on charges of armed assault with intent to murder and carrying a firearm without a license. Tuesday, those charges were upgraded to murder. Early said that Belnavis will be charged with murder when he returns to Massachusetts. Belnavis, with the most recent address at Toronita Avenue, has a long criminal record, mostly for drugs and domestic violence. Like Mangual, he has been associated with gangs, court records show. A spokesperson for Early's office said yesterday that Belnavis is expected to appear for an extradition hearing in front of a judge in California but it's not clear when that will happen. When he will be brought to Massachusetts also depends on whether Belnavis fights extradition, added the spokesperson. Interim Police Chief Paul Saucier said the arrest was the result of many agencies collaborating, including Worcester and State Police, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Massachusetts, Hartford, Connecticut Police as well, San Diego Police, and the U.S. Marshal's offices in Massachusetts, Maine, and Rhode Island. The chief said Worcester is a safe community when stacked up against comparable cities. He said patrols increased in the area of the shooting. This is not Worcester. This is not a violent city, Saucier said. We have our challenges. Everyone does in the city. But besides that, the men and women of the police Department in Worcester are out there every day putting in 110% so that we can live in a safe community. Early said that although Belnavis was considered armed and dangerous, the arrest was made without any additional violence. Authorities were tracking Belnavis for a week through law enforcement technology, Saucier said, and they were able to pinpoint his location. Early added the boots and leather on the ground, police work, and tips also contributed to the arrest. At the time of the press conference, Saucier said interviews were not yet conducted to determine a motive for the shooting and why Bill Mavis had gone to California. Worcester Police Lieutenant David Doherty said Chastity and Zella Nunez's family members were notified of the arrest shortly before it was announced to the public around 6 o'clock. Early said the family is asking for privacy. Joseph Petty said the arrest brings great relief to the family as well as to the Columbus Park neighborhood and Worcester Public Schools. Zella Nunez was a sixth-grade student at Columbus Park Preparatory Academy. 
Chastity Nunez was remembered as an exemplary member of the Connecticut National Guard and a beloved co-worker in her job as a clinical quality program coordinator at MIT Health. According to an obituary for both Chastity and Zella, Chastity was a dependable daughter, mother, sister, and friend. Zella was described as a princess who shared her mother's positive outlook and loved teaching the latest TikTok dances. And of course, in a related story you just heard, Carol Mangual, one of the two men that police believed killed Chastity and her daughter, faces two charges of murder. One day after the other man implicated in the case, Dijon Belmavis, was arrested in California. Mangual was initially arraigned Thursday in Central District Court on charges of armed assault and intent to murder and carrying a firearm with an out without a license. On his behalf, his attorney entered a not guilty plea. They said the shooters ran in the direction where a witness said a white sedan was parked. Surveillance video and witness evidence police said showed a vehicle consistent with the sedan circling the area before shooting and leaving the area afterward. Police were able to get the sedan's license plate and speak to its owner, who told them that Bell Navis had been borrowing it for about a year. Bill Navis was listed as the driver of the car during a Shrewsbury crash in January, they said, and his cell phone records tie him to Inglewood Avenue at the time of the shooting. Police allege in court documents that video shows Mangual and Bell Navis exiting the vehicle in Hartford, Connecticut, and both men wearing shoes similar to the ones worn by the shooters. They said Mangual was wearing the same distinctive purple and black shoes, in both videos, and an officer, <coughs> pardon me, an officer who has known Mangual since childhood, police said, identified him on the video from Hartford. Mangual has a tattoo that reads R.I.P. Robert Walker, according to court records, a dedication to an eight-year-old Blackstone man who died in 2013 after an altercation at a birthday party in Worcester. Mangual also faces trial at the Dudley District Court on allegations from Webster police that include assault and battery on a police officer and carrying a dangerous weapon stemming from March 2023. He has an open case in Central District Court on allegations that Worcester police caught him in March of 2022 with eight grams of suspected crack, which they believe he was selling on Main Street. In 2015, Mangual was sentenced to three to five years in prison for a retaliatory shooting behind an apartment building on View Street. Authorities connected the attack to the fatal shooting of Christian Obeng Addo days earlier. In the next article from the front page out of Worcester, the idea of overdose prevention centers is getting increased attention after the last week's four to zero vote by the city's Board of Health to create a pilot program pending state approval. Supporters say that the centers, also known as safe injection or supervised injection sites, save lives because users bring illicit drugs to the facilities and use them while monitored by medical professionals. Many fatal overdoses happen when someone is using drugs alone. Opponents believe the centers enable drug users. Besides, federal and Massachusetts law says the centers are illegal. Well, Worcester is the first municipality in Massachusetts to take the official step of endorsing a pilot program 
and the vote created many questions. When will the center come to Worcester? Will residents insist not in my backyard? Well, who has the authority to open an overdose prevention center? The Worcester Board of Health has the authority to create a safe injection pilot program. The City Council voted 8-2 to two on March 11th of 2014 to authorize then-City Manager Ed Augustus to file special legislation at the State House to change the Board of Health's power from advisory to regulatory. The legislature approved the bill on June 6th of that year. Afterward, then-City Councilor Michael Gaffney filed a complaint of an open meeting law, a violation, with the Attorney General's office. Gaffney claimed the council had illegally voted on the issue when it wasn't on that night's council agenda. The AG's office ruled that no violation occurred. So, is city manager or city council approval needed? The answer appears to be no. City manager Eric Batista's office cited pending state legislation in interpreting the city manager and city council approval is not needed for an overdose prevention center to open and operate in Worcester. That legislation would authorize overdose prevention centers in the state under a 10-year pilot program and establish the legal and regulatory framework for the operation of these centers. The city's interpretation of the bill is that the Worcester Board of Health would approve an organization to operate the center while the State Department of Public Health licenses the operation. Despite the wording of the bill, input from Batista, the City Council, and other community members is welcome said Worcester Health Board member Gary Rosen. Rosen added that public hearings would ensure, rather, pardon me, would ensue because the board wants input from across the city. Mayor Petty was not available for an interview, but issued a statement that made two points. State lawmakers need to weigh in, and a broad community discussion will be needed. Well, pending state approval, what does that mean? The board's vote includes a qualifier pending state approval, and there appears to be some uncertainty on this point. Rosen thinks the State Department of Public Health will guide Worcester's health board as it moves to select an organization to run a pilot program. Rosen's fellow board member, interim chairwoman Frances Anthes, also didn't appear to have a clear understanding of what state approval means. Well, State Health Department, must it approve the pilot? The State Health Department did not respond to that question. A top state public official said cities and towns can establish overdose prevention centers without state lawmakers passing a bill to legalize them. Deirdre Calvert, director of the Bureau of Substance Addiction Services at the State Department of Public Health, delivered that message to the board before its 4-0 vote. A review of the state's Health Department's 2023 Overdose Prevention Center Feasibility Report shows the department supports overdose prevention centers in Massachusetts as a tool to save lives. However, the department believes state legislation is needed to protect those associated with the centers from potential civil and criminal penalties, since they currently they are currently illegal under federal and mass law. Absent legislation, there is a way forward, according to the study. The State Health Department could revise licensing board's regulations. It could also issue guidance or a waiver that says a professional licensing board will not enforce certain provisions as they relate to overdose prevention centers. Well, what about 
not in my backyardism. Well, Rosen said there's no doubt some city residents will speak out against a pilot program in their neighborhood. In Rhode Island, where the first state-regulated overdose prevention center is expected to open this summer, addressing neighborhood concerns was involved in finding a site. State lawmakers approved a center in 2021, and the Providence City Council voted last month to greenlight a location. They hope to open it near the Rhode Island Hospital. The state health department will regulate the center. So to build community support, outreach included meetings with residents, neighborhood associations, one-on-one meetings with city councilors, and door-to-door canvassing. What seemed to help lighten concerns was research from Brown University School of Public Health that showed crime rates do not increase in areas around centers. In addition, the site is in an area that is largely removed from residential neighborhoods. The center will occupy 13,000 square feet on the ground floor of a two-story, 20,500-square-foot building. It's a rental with the goal of ownership, and the operators will sublet the top floor to partner organizations that, that were not named. Some of Rhode Island's opioid settlement money will fund most of that center's services. Donations and private foundations will also supply funds. So, two years to open one in Worcester? Well, Rosen thinks it could take that long. There's the protracted slog of public hearings, accumulating perspectives from various constituencies, and weighing all that data to select a location that works for Worcester. Lastly, from the front page section of the paper, Nation World Briefs from Dubai, United Arab Emirates. China, Iran, and Russia have begun a joint naval drill in the Gulf of Oman, a crucial waterway near the mouth of the Persian Gulf, officials have said yesterday. Footage aired by Chinese state TV and a video released by the Russian Navy showed the ongoing drill, known as Marine Security Belt 2024. China sent the guided missile destroyer Ermaki and the guided missile frigate Limi to the exercise. And a former Boeing employee who spoke out about safety concerns with the company's aircraft production was found dead in his car in Charleston, South Carolina, several news outlets have reported. John Barnett, 62, a quality manager who worked with Boeing for over 30 years, was found dead Saturday with what appeared to be a self-inflicted gunshot wound, according to multiple media outlets, including the Washington Post and the BBC. Barnett was in Charleston for legal interviews related to a case against Boeing, as reported by the BBC, which spoke with Barnett's lawyer. He gave a formal deposition last week and was questioned by Boeing's lawyers and then cross-examined by his own lawyer. And lastly, today from Cape Canaveral, Florida, four astronauts from four countries caught a lift back to Earth with SpaceX on Tuesday to end a half-year mission at the International Space Station. Their capsules streaked across the U.S. in the pre-dawn darkness and splashed into the Gulf of Mexico near the Florida Panhandle. NASA's Jasmine Mogbelli, a marine helicopter pilot, led the returning crew of Denmark's Andreas Morgensen, Japan's Satoshi Furukawa, and Russia's Konstantin Borisov. 
They moved into the space station last August. Their replacements arrived last week in their own SpaceX capsule. And that concludes front page news from today's TNG. You're listening to a reading of the Worcester Telegram and Gazette, a production of Audio Journal, for Wednesday, March 13th. The lead story out of Worcester today. The lawyer of a man facing trial for charges stemming from a 2021 fatal crash argued in Worcester Superior Court on Monday that the driver struck a bump on the road that sent him into an out-of-control swerve. The crash claimed the life of a passenger, Jessica L. Simone, 35. Mufad A. Ferris faces manslaughter and vehicular homicide charges after he slammed into an oncoming car on Goldsbury Street about 2 a.m. on October 10th in 2021, causing ejection of Simone from the car and into the parking lot of the nearby Worcester Police Department. Simone, a hairdresser who at the time of the crash was studying to become a radiology technician, was pronounced dead at UMass Memorial Medical Center despite on-duty police officers rushing out of the station to give first aid. In court on Monday, a 14-member jury looked on as photos from the crash were shown. The images depicted Ferris's Mitsubishi Lancer with a mangled front and a Subaru Sport utility vehicle with its front end damaged. Daniel Bennett, a special prosecutor for the Worcester County District Attorney's Office, alleged Monday that Ferris was drag racing with Ferris and Sheikh Omar, then 20, while on their way home after leaving the Compass Tavern. Sheikh Omar also faces manslaughter and vehicular homicide charges. Using surveillance video, Bennett pointed out Sheikh Omar's white BMW 335 overtaking Ferris as traffic lights turned green on Summer Street near Thomas Street. In another video, Ferris's blue Mitsubishi Lancer is then seen attempting to pass the white BMW in the wrong lane of travel. While Goldsbury Street has a speed limit of 30 miles per hour, Officer Keith Garlick, a Worcester Police Reconstructionist, said Monday that Ferris's Mitsubishi was traveling at an average of 53 miles an hour. Officer Thomas Verrocco, also of the department's reconstruction team, said that he calculated Ferris's speed using tire tracks near the crash site at approximately 71 miles per hour. Defense lawyer Stephen Goldwyn disputed the numbers, claiming flaws in the method used by both members of the police department, often citing incomplete information. Moreover, Goldwyn said in his opening statement that Ferris righted the ship after traveling on the left lane on Goldsboro Street, having full control of the car before it hit a quote-unquote, big bump on the road, sending the car into a tailspin and then crashing against a Subaru in the opposite lane. The driver of the Subaru, Juliana Bauman of Worcester, said in court on Monday that before the accident, she noticed Ferris's car attempt to merge back into its lane as it drove at a pretty significant speed, and that phrase is in quotes, losing control and coming into her lane right before the crash. As they took the witness stand on Monday, city police officers working early morning on October 10th said the crash sounded like a bomb went off or an explosion. Simone was the daughter of Kevin Harkins, 
a man who disappeared from Worcester's, a Worcester pub in 1994. Three men were later convicted of murdering him. Last Thursday, two other charges against Ferris, reckless operation of a motor vehicle and racing motor vehicle, were dropped. The trial for manslaughter and vehicular homicide charges is set to resume Tuesday with a site visit of the accident planned for jury members. Judge William Ritter said Monday that trial is expected to last no further than Wednesday afternoon. And in some other local news, again from Worcester, following backlash to an updated permit application requiring buskers to pay $50 for a two-week permit to play in city parks, the city is proposing that street performers no longer need Parks and Recreation Commission approval. A since-removed application form on the city's website set out rules for street musicians and performers who wish to play in city parks between April and October of this year, barring them from performing on the Worcester Common and requiring them to pay $50 for a new permit every two weeks. In February, an online petition spread protesting against the paperwork with several musicians who busk on Worcester streets voicing their opposition to having to pay a fee. In late February, a spokesperson for the city said the permit application was on hold and under review. In a communication to the City Council on Tuesday's meeting agenda, City Manager Batista submitted a revision to the City's Itinerant Music Musician Ordinance, or Busking Ordinance, drafted by the Law Department. According to Batista's communication, an quote-unquote incorrect impression had spread that buskers needed to spend $50 to play anywhere in the city. In order to provide greater, less regulated access to parks, playgrounds, and the city common, the ordinance has been revised to no longer require musicians to receive the written permission from the Parks Commission, but they must perform over 100 feet from other permitted activity in the spaces. In addition, the amended ordinance would also delete a requirement that a street performer's sign is no larger than 12 by 18 inches. Coming from a family of musicians and being a drummer myself, I know firsthand the value that the arts bring to a community, Batista wrote in his communication. In July of 2019, the city of Worcester published a cultural plan to foster creativity and connection in the city over a 10-year period. The plan's second section, dedicated to public spaces, mentioned busking as a crucial component. In his communication, Batista said he believes residents should not have to deal with the burdensome process to busk. And in other local news, a story related to um, the, the for some front-page news I've already shared out of Worcester. The largest donation to a GoFundMe page created on behalf of the family of Chastity and Zella Nunez, who of course were killed by gunfire in Worcester, has come from Grammy-nominated rapper and Worcester native Joyner Lucas. Lucas donated $9,000. There is a dark cloud over the city that may never go away after this, Lucas said in a statement to the TNG. Police have alleged, of course, about the in two documents that two men, Dijon Belmavis and Carol Mangual, opened fire on the parked, parked SUV. 
In a statement made through his manager, Lucas said he knew Chastity and Zella Nunez and was still mentally processing their deaths. I stayed away from commenting on this situation because I'm still at a loss for words. I knew Chastity and her daughter personally, so this one hit me hard, Lucas said. Lucas said that Chastity, who had a budding modeling career in Worcester, starred in a music video for his 2018 song, Frozen. The song and video share a theme of driving safely. The content now has unfortunate parallels to real life. In the video, Chastity appears inside a vehicle and raps from the perspective of someone killed in a fatal crash. A few years ago, Chastity reached out to me because I was creating a chilling music video to my song called Frozen. I did choose Chastity to play the woman on the second verse, and honestly, I can't even watch the video anymore because in the video, she's literally inside a car, dead, rapping while speaking from the grave. Lucas said he now feels horrible about Chastity being in the video and asked the family if they would want him to remove it. He also plans to attend their funeral. The page was organized by Quashada O'Leary on behalf of Ben Nunez in order to pay for funeral expenses and supporting Chastity's surviving two-year-old daughter. By early Monday afternoon, the page had surpassed its $45,000 goal with $45,412 in contributions. In other news from the State House News Service, Governor Maura Healy has selected a veteran probation officer from Worcester to fill the last open seat on the State Parole Board. Healy Monday nominated Raphael Ortiz, a probation officer in Central Mass, for more than three decades. Ortiz has quote-unquote been instrumental in several partnerships between the courts, probation, and Worcester Public Schools designed to deter and divert court involvement for youth, according to the governor's office. Over the course of his career, Raphael has proven to be a dedicated probation officer with a deep understanding of our criminal justice system, Healy said. We are thankful to members of the governor's council for their consideration and look forward to their decision. The seven-member governor's council will vet Healy's nomination. And also from Worcester, State investigators indicated there are no deficiencies in staffing and quality of patient care at St. Vincent Hospital, according to the hospital. But nurses are crying foul because they said St. Vincent did not let them meet privately with investigators to share their concerns. Investigators from the State Department of Public Health spent five days at the hospital following more than 700 complaints filed by nurses with state and federal regulators that claimed severe understaffing that put patient safety at risk. The State Department of Health did not immediately respond to a request for a copy of its report. To have no negative findings for staffing and quality care come from the DPH as a reflection of the consistent collaboration and dedication to patient care of our staff and physicians, says Carolyn Jackson, the hospital's chief executive officer. Well, nurses argue there wasn't a clear picture of the inner workings because the hospital hand-picked nurses to meet with investigators. Some nurses were denied the chance to speak with investigators, and others feared management retaliation if they did, 
according to the MNA. St. Vincent discredited the Union's charge of interference. We do not condone the MNA's actions and try to try to discredit our high-quality organizations. State investigators found five of six alleged complaints completely unsubstantiated, said the hospital's release. Telemetry monitoring equipment was cited for improvement, and the hospital said it was corrected. Nurses contacted the office of Governor Healy to request the state health department put monitors at the hospital to ensure patient safety. This latest report follows last week's report by the Joint Commission that said St. Vincent's accreditation could be in jeopardy. The hospital must demonstrate evidence that it complies with proper patient care standards to keep its accreditation. St. Vincent was found non-compliant with applicable Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services conditions. Complaints from nurses include the hospital's failure to meet contract terms to adequately staff the emergency room. Of course, that contract between nurses and management was reached after the longest nurses' strike in state history of more than 300 days that was settled two years ago. The agreement calls for at least 15 nurses on duty in the emergency room, according to the association. However, half that number are on duty many evenings. Additional complaints related to low staffing include cardiac patients admitted without access to special monitors, increased calls for rapid response backup, maternity patients placed on hold for inductions, and patients left to lie in their own urine and feces for extended periods of time. Some nurses that lodged complaints were fired, according to the union, including three nurses in the emergency department. Six nurses on other units were suspended without pay. The MNA filed a charge of unfair labor practices against hospital owner Tenant Healthcare and wants the terminations and suspensions lifted. A hospital that once had more than 800 nurses now is staffed with less than 600, with more than 200 pending vacancies, according to the Nurses Association. Nurses claim the hospital denied their request for an influx of temporary nurses to meet patient demand in the maternity unit. During the longest strike in state history that lasted nearly two years, nurses claim the hospital spent $5 million every week on temporary nurses. Tenet Healthcare, which is based in Dallas, also owns Metro West Medical Center in Framingham and Leonard Morse Hospital in Natick. Tenet reported a gross profit of $16.9 billion in 2023, with an operating income of $2.4 billion in the same year, according to online reports. And now for just a bit of entertainment news. Legendary Monty Python's Flying Circus co-creator John Cleese is going to return to the Hanover Theater and Conservatory for the Performing Arts at 7.30 p.m. on June 9th for a screening of the uproarious 1975 comedy Monty Python and the Holy Grail, followed by a conversation and Q&A with the audience. The appearance comes with one proviso, absurd and or ridiculous questions only are requested, please. Well, Cleese has previously entertained audience at the Hanover Theater with a showing of the film and a Q&A in 2017, and early in 2020, just before the pandemic shut everything down. Moderating the 2020 Q&A was Cleese's daughter, Camilla. Tickets for the June 9th event are going to go on sale at the Hanover Theater for members at 10 a.m. Wednesday and to the public at 10 a.m. on Friday. 
price of tickets range between $52 and $102, and a limited VIP post-show photo opportunity for just $253. So for more information, you can go to HanoverTheater.org or call 877-571-7469. And lastly, just a quick review. If you are a fan of John Mellencamp, he rocked the Hanover Theater Conservatory on Monday night. The review says, whereas a lot of classic musical acts making the rounds revel in the karaoke nostalgia of their old hits, Mellencamp seems to have become more of the persona he has long portrayed. The grit and gravel of his voice has deepened, and while he has always brought a sense of authenticity to his work, the gravitas of age wears well with him. It gave lines of old favorites whole new layers. Mellencamp has changed, as we all do, and his music changed with him, and the result was riveting. And that concludes local news from today's TNG. You are listening to a reading of the Worcester Telegram and Gazette for Wednesday, March 13th, a production of Audio Journal. And we now have sports news from today's paper. The lead story, big picture, um, of a bunch of girls hugging one another from Worcester, Hannah Kersonis readily acknowledged being frustrated with the way she played for the West Boylston girls basketball team at the start of its Division Five state semifinal versus Palmer. As for the finish, blessed, dazed, and euphoric are all appropriate adjectives. Kersonis swiftly collected a tripped, a tipped rebound and smoothly released a jump shot from the left elbow in the face of two onrushing defenders that banked in with two seconds to play to lift the Lions to a 58-57 overtime victory Monday evening in a Division Five state semifinal at Worcester State. I just went in as quick as I could, got it, went up with it, and luckily it went in, said the eighth-grade forward who scored all three of her points in a four-minute four overtime session that saw five lead changes and a tie. It didn't even hit me at first, and then I felt it. I was like, oh my gosh, I had just hit that again. Then all my teammates came rushing to me, and it was a great feeling. The second-seeded Lions, making their very first state semifinal appearance in 31 years, are headed to what is to believe to be their first state championship game after improving to 22-3. and three. They'll meet number one Hoosack Valley or number four Renaissance School, who played Tuesday at a time and date, most likely Saturday or Sunday, to be determined at the Songus Center in Lowell. Playing on the third weekend in March isn't something one of the Lions veterans envisioned when practice began in late November. Honestly, I didn't, Senior Captain Sammy Mullins said. I knew we were going to go far, but I never imagined this, and I could not be happier. Well, the Lions led or were tied for all but 58 seconds in regulation, their largest advantage being 11 points in the third. And that was despite committing too many turnovers, 22 of them, missing too many threes, just 7 of 33, and surrendering too many offensive rebounds. Three-sop possessions were not uncommon for Palmer. When things don't go our way, like turnovers, we don't hang our heads, said Coach Kelly McSweeney, a West Boylston alum and former player. We get back and try to get a stop on the other end. We just play start to finish. And clearly today, start to finish with Hannah, with that amazing shot at the end, 
just being able to persevere no matter what is happening in the game and continue to play as a team and to continue to find our shots when we can get them. Well, senior Maddie Pitro, who scored her 1,000th point earlier this season and came in averaging 16.1, had trouble getting her shot to fall all game, finishing just four for 24 from the field. But she drained a last-minute three in regulation and drilled a big three and two free throws in OT to put the Lions ahead in all three instances. I was off game, um, she said, but I'm glad I hit that OT shot, who finished with 13 points, nine rebounds, an assist, and a steal in this marathon matchup. Mullins finished with a game-high 18 points as she drained four triples, and eighth-grader Alicia Stone ran the floor and rebounded her way to 15 points. Sophomore Emily Pitro scored nine points before departing for good with a head injury after drawing a charge on Palmer standout sophomore Charlotte Thierold with 52 seconds left in regulation. And the Lions got quality minutes off the bench from the foursome of senior Shannon Luxia, junior Noelle Hinkson, sophomore Hannah Quinn, and eighth grader Rosalia Renzoni. People put a lot of emphasis on our seniors, said Maddie, who had that amazing accomplishment of scoring 1,000 points earlier in the year, McSweeney said, but we're much more than that. We have depth to this team, and everybody who goes on the court contributes. Six-seeded Palmer finished 15-9 and nine with five losses by four points or less. Thierold, a smooth-shooting sophomore guard, has already scored over 1,000 points, finished with a game-high 27 points on 11 of 28 shooting, including 1 of 12 from behind the arc. She added 12 rebounds, an assist, and 5 steals while drawing a whopping 8 fouls. And in some Holy Cross news today, also from Worcester, in Monday night's Patriot League Tournament quarterfinal at the Hart Center, Holy Cross senior guard Kara McCormick missed her ten, her first 10 field goal attempts. With top-seeded Holy Cross locked in a battle with number 8 Bucknell, the Crusaders needed McCormick to help spur the offense down the stretch. Every shooter knows you just have to keep going, McCormick said. Once you shoot and miss, it's on to the next shot, and that's what my coaches kept telling me, and that's the mindset I had with every shot. Every shot I thought was going in, and that's how I kept playing. Well, McCormick buried two of the biggest shots of the game, both from three-point territory in the last four minutes, and Holy Cross held off the Bison, 61-56, to to complete a three-game season sweep of Bucknell, and they'll advance to the semifinals. The Crusaders, 19-12, and host the number four Loyola at 7 p.m. Thursday. It's exciting for us, McCormick said. We're taking it one game at a time and being in the moment at every practice. We are looking forward to the next game. Bucknell, which has won four of five coming in, finished 14-17. Holy Cross, the defending Patriot League Tournament champion, captured its second regular season PL title in the last three seasons. Seven teams, including Bucknell, finished within two games of the top spot in the standings. The Crusaders, coming off a win over Lafayette in their regular season finale, with a couple of extra days to rest and get ready, entered the tournament with confidence, but expecting a challenging matchup with Bucknell, who took Holy Cross to overtime last month. 
Holy Cross had contributions from all nine Crusaders who played, and the senior trio of McCormick, Power Cassidy, and Allen led them in the closing minutes. Neither team led by more than seven, and the game was tied at 44 with 7.10 left. Foreman had a terrific steal and breakaway layup, then McCormick sank her first three to put Holy Cross up by five with just four minutes to play. Bucknell kept it a three-point game on sophomore Emma Theodore Stone's putback, but Power Cassidy found Allen underneath, and Holy Cross took a six-point lead with less than two minutes left on McCormick's second three. The Crusaders made seven of their first ten shot attempts and had eight assists on their first ten baskets. Their offense cooled in the second quarter, and they ended up shooting just 41% from the floor and just four of 18 from three-point territory. They turned the ball over 15 times, but scored 23 points off Bucknell's 20 turnovers. Freshman forward Ashley Sofakanich led Bucknell with 17 points, and Theodorson added 16. And now, an article from Surprise, Arizona. Future Hall of Fame pitcher Max Scherzer will not pitch again for the Texas Rangers until at least June. The two-time Cy Young winner, Jacob deGrom, is out until at least August. Rangers first baseman Nathaniel Lowe has an oblique strain that likely will sideline him at least a month, requiring the first IL stint of his career. An all-star shortstop Corey Seager, a sports hernia, and third baseman Josh Lung, left calf strain, have been injured all spring. Their two top draft picks of the past two years, starter Jack Leader and Kumar Rocket, likely won't be ready to pitch in the big leagues this season. And Rangers owner Ray Davis, at least for now, refuses to bring back postseason pitching hero Jordan Montgomery on a lucrative free agent contract with no TV contract past this season. But worry? Uh Uh-uh. These are the defending world champions. They sneer at adversity and swat off obstacles like summer mosquitoes, just like they did over and over last season. I feel really good about our world championship, Rangers manager Bruce Bocci tells USA Sports. They have something now for the rest of their lives, including Ray Davis at ownership. It's just the gift that keeps on giving. When we start the season, we'll have the ring ceremony and all of that hoopla, but that's when you realize it's over. It's time to get to work and win another one. This is a team that blew more games than any team to ever reach the postseason. Bocce's Rangers lost the AL West title to, on the final day of the regular season. They had to travel from Seattle to Tampa for the opening wildcard series. They had to fly up to Baltimore for the next series. They had to face the defending World Series champion Houston Astros in the ALCS and then face the red-hot Arizona Diamondbacks in the World Series. And then... They laughed all the way home to Texas. Everyone counted us out last year, but these guys never gave up, Bocce says. They never dwelled on their losses. They just went out and worked. That's what impressed me the most, their resiliency. They were unfazed the entire time. And just in case anyone in the Rangers clubhouse is still basking from last year's glorious postseason, Bocce already reminded them that no one will care after they raise the World Series banner on opening day. Lastly, the Railers are playing tonight, uh, today at Reading at 10.05, and the Red Sox will have their exhibition game with the Yankees at 1 o'clock today. And that concludes sports from today's TNG.
This local news program is a production of Audio Journal, a proud member of the Massachusetts Audio Information Network. Programming is funded in part by the Memorial Foundation for the Blind, the Massachusetts Commission for the Blind, and Unibank. If you have any suggestions for our program, please call us at 508-797-1117 and let us know. We would love to hear from you. Archived editions of the program are available on our website, audiojournal.org, or go to the Audio Journal app on your iPhone, iPad, or Android device. My name is Tracy. Thanks again for listening. Have a wonderful remainder of your day today. You are listening to Audio Journal, a proud member of the Massachusetts Audio Information Network. Hello once again, Audio Journal listeners. This is Bill Ruggiero. I'll give you the latest weather forecast for today. This is Wednesday, March the 13th, 2024. We'll have mostly sunny skies, diminishing winds this afternoon, highs near 61 degrees. For tonight, mostly clear skies early, then mostly cloudy after midnight. Low will be near 44 degrees. Now for your Thursday is called for mostly cloudy skies, highs near 63 degrees. Thursday night, Mostly cloudy skies with some showers late. Low will be near 48 degrees. And the outlook for Friday is called for mostly cloudy skies with showers on and off throughout the afternoon. Highs Friday near 48 degrees. Friday night, an early evening shower, otherwise clearing after midnight. Low will be near 35 degrees, and the outlook for Saturday is called for mostly sunny skies, high Saturday near 54 degrees. Saturday night, mostly cloudy skies with some showers late. Low will be near 34 degrees, and the outlook for Sunday is called for mostly cloudy skies with some rain likely in the afternoon. Rain may be heavy at times. Highs on Sunday near 54 degrees. That, folks, is your latest weather forecast for today, Wednesday, March 13th, 2024. This has been Bill Ruggiero saying have a good and happy day, everybody. And please stay tuned for more programming brought to you by Audio Journal. Take care. Have a wonderful Wednesday, everybody. Bye. This is Bird Note. On the Gulf of Mexico, a long, low sandbar marks the entrance to a protected expanse of water, a lagoon. Small fish dart across the lagoon, riffling the ankle-deep water. A reddish egret waits, watching alertly. The reddish egret, a particularly glamorous heron, is named for the ruffled plumes of its long neck, which gleam like burnished copper. The egret stands nearly three feet tall on lanky, cobalt-blue legs. Its bill, a long pink dagger, is tipped in black. Exquisite, yes, but reddish egrets are best known for their startling antics in capturing fish. When fishing, the egret sprints across the lagoon, weaving left and right, simultaneously flicking its broad wings in and out while stabbing into the water with its bill. Fish startled at the egret's crazed movements become targets of that pink dagger. This is just one of the reddish egret's several fishing tactics. At times, the bird will raise its wings forward over its head, creating a shadow on the water. 
It then freezes in this position for minutes. Fish swim in, attracted by a patch of shade, and, well, you know the rest. For Bird Note, I'm Michael Stein. Bird Note gives you the sounds of birds every day. And you can get the sights as well when you follow us on Instagram, at Bird Note Radio.